Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Every good sermon has got to have some application. Every good Bible lesson's got to have an application. And, it, and every good sermon asks the question, if this is true, then what is our response to this truth? Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, of course, doesn't skip on the application. Uh, we've gone line by line through all the Beatitudes. Now, I don't know about you, but, but the statements of the Beatitudes have been equivalent to, to radical heart surgery. Each and every single statement calls for a serious evaluation of our hearts. And as a consequence of the Beatitudes, we understand that there is this expectation that is then placed upon us as, as citizens of the kingdom of God. That we ought to be making a, a difference to the world around us as salt and light, salt that preserves the culture and light that pushes back darkness. Well, Christians, we ought to enhance any gathering we're a part of. So if you're part of the Lions Club, your presence ought to make a difference. If you go to work and work in an office, your presence in the office ought to make a difference in that organization. Well, this teaching that Jesus brings is, represents a, a radical departure from the teaching of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Instead of worrying about external works, the Sermon on the Mount very quickly gets below the surface and begins to deal with the heart. In our passage from last week, Jesus made a profound statement that he was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, instead of doing away with the requirements, though, he, he satisfied the requirements. But by doing so, he requires that his followers, that they would have a righteousness that supersedes the righteousness of the religious leaders of the day. Again, a, a profound statement that Jesus was making. And that righteousness can, can only come from a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. And so by God's grace, our hearts are transformed, which gets to the motives behind our actions and the motives behind our words, not just the external reality of our actions and our words. Well, the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, it deals with the application of this truth. And let me say this, it gets real serious real quick. He begins with this next section with a series of statements that begin with this. You have heard it said. You have heard it said. And by doing so, he, he's not undoing the law 
uh, that he mentions, but he's bringing a a kingdom-centered corrective to these very important matters of the heart. And so our challenge for these next few weeks is, as we work through these statements, is to let the Word do its work. To let the Word do its work. And I can promise you something. Probably multiple things in the next few weeks are going to hit us right between the eyes. Uh, there's some things we're going to talk about that, that, that are going to challenge us, that are going to maybe even make us mad. Well, that's okay. If the Bible's not making us mad and challenging us, then we're not reading it hard enough. So we're going to get into this, and, and I can assure you that, that nothing here is personal. If you got cussing mad at somebody this week, it, I wasn't stalking you to see that it happened. This, this sermon on anger has been planned for a couple of months now, so I promise that it's, that it's, not, a, it's not a coincidence. It's, it's, a, it's a God-ordained event in your life that, that there's something you need to work through. So if you think the Beatitudes were tough, I'll just say this. You ain't seen nothing yet. So we need to take our licks, listen to the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, and if we do, we'll all be better off in the long run, and we'll be a healthier church as well. So I think that's an adequate disclaimer for where we're going to be for the next few weeks. With that being said, let's jump into the scriptures today from Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 21. If you've got your Bible, please open to Matthew chapter 5. Let's stand together and read these words here. Jesus continuing his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. You have heard it, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. As we think through Jesus' words here, uh, you can be seated. As we think through Jesus' teaching here, the, the first thing that comes to mind, and this perhaps goes without saying, it's easy to not be a murderer. Amen? That's an amen point. Y'all are supposed to all agree with that one. <laughs> it is easy to not be a murderer. In fact, I think this goes without saying, an overwhelming majority of people are not murderers. Amen? See, look at there, we're all, we're all agreeing. In fact, even in the year 2020, and 2020 has been a year, I believe this, I believe that an overwhelming supermajority of people agree that murderers are bad and should be condemned for their actions. Everybody agree? I, I mean, an overwhelming majority of people can agree with that statement. In fact, now this was a little bit old, it's 2018, but a 2018 Pew Research survey even found that a majority of people favor the death penalty for convicted murderers. 
That's not as big as the other majority, but a majority of people agree with the death penalty for convicted murderers. Our legal system even recognizes different degrees of murder. We acknowledge that there's premeditated murder. We call that first-degree murder. There's murder as a consequence of some other action. Sometimes you'll hear somebody be uh, uh, convicted of, of uh, felony murder. That's when somebody's killed as a result of someone committing a felony. And so murder wasn't the goal, the felony was, but the murder happens regardless. We even acknowledge that murder happens accidentally sometimes, and that's even treated as a crime. It's called manslaughter. The only murder that we seem to be a little bit uncertain about as a people is the murder of an unborn child. For some reason, a lot of people don't think that counts. I beg to differ. I'd be willing to bet, again, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, I'd be willing to bet that average murderers look at murderers like serial killers and say, man, they're really bad people. I just killed one person, but that dude over there killed 10 people. He's way worse than I am. My point is this, when it comes to the fifth commandment, uh, the, the sixth commandment, there has been nearly universal acceptance of this commandment as true. Across civilizations, across time, across people, everybody generally agrees, thou shalt not murder is a pretty good rule to follow. But Jesus isn't replacing the sixth commandment. In none of these examples is Jesus replacing the requirements of the law as we work our way through the rest of chapter 5. He's not replacing the requirements of the law. He, he repeats it almost like a, like a refrain from a song. You've heard it said this, but I'll tell you this. And in none of those places is he saying, you know what, that commandment don't kill. We're going to get rid of that and we're going to do something different. He never does that, not one time. No one could listen to Jesus here and listen to everything he says and come to the conclusion, well, Jesus must be pro-murder because of how he says. You've heard it said, but I tell you something different. However, you do need to remember what Jesus said back in the previous section, back in verse 20. Remember about what he said back in verse 20? He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That verse needs to be one you underline, one that you pay close attention to, because it matters. You see, in the kingdom of God, it, it's not enough just to celebrate that we're not killing each other. Now, I understand in some Baptist churches that just getting through a church service without that happening is an accomplishment. That, that's not enough in the kingdom of God to celebrate that, well, we're not killing anybody. That's not a point of celebration. The kingdom of God ought to look very different from the world in which it operates. And the local church operates and functions as an embassy of the kingdom of God. So the principles of the Sermon on the Mount are deployed within these local manifestations, these local embassies of the kingdom of God. If somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, do you go to a healthy church? Your answer needs to be better than, you better believe it, we haven't murdered each other in the last 10 years. If that's your answer, you've accomplished the sixth commandment, but you've not really got close to the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, in the kingdom of God, we're looking for righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. We're looking for a righteousness that's, that's better than, than, than that of the Pharisees. And so the kingdom of God is, is concerned with more than just the actions of our hands. The kingdom of God is, is, more concerned, is concerned about more than just the words of our mouth. 
The kingdom of heaven is concerned about the underlying conditions that allow for murder. Look at verse 22. In verse 22, we see these words. But I say to you, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, whoever... Whoever, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Isaac Newton put together the law of inertia. It's known as the Newton's first law. And Newton's first law says this. It says that if a body is at rest or moving at a constant speed in a straight line, it will remain at rest or keep moving in a straight line at constant speed unless it is acted upon by an outside force. That's the law of inertia. When you launch a satellite into space, we've launched these Voyager probes, and they're going out of the solar system, and they've gone further than anything's ever gone before. It's like Star Trek in real life, going where no man's gone before. These things are going to keep going in a straight line. Even when they run out of fuel and they can no longer send their radio signals back to us, these things are going to keep going in a straight line until what? Till they hit something. That's the law of inertia. It's, that's what's at work right now, sending these things to the end of the solar, to wherever they're going to end up. Now, we, if you remember from physics class, you remember things that can act on other objects, things like friction and, and gravity. Those sort of things act on these objects that are in motion. You say, Preacher, I didn't come to hear about physics. I came to hear about my soul. Well, that's okay because sin has a law of inertia as well. Sin has a, a type of spiritual inertia because we understand this, that sin will continue to progress unless it is acted upon by an outside force. James chapter 1 verse 15 describes the inertia of sin. He says it this way, desire when it has been conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. That is the inertia of sin. The danger of, of sin being acted upon in this way is that unless it's something outside acts upon, it's going to continue to its natural end. Outside forces that act on sin are things like conscience and conviction, accountability, of course the Holy Spirit working. But unless those things act, James 1.15 will see sin lead to its natural consequences. When you get on this road, you're not guaranteed that some outside force is going to change your course. And that gets to the heart of Jesus' teaching here. Yeah, we know it says don't kill, but let's back that road up a little bit. Let's back down that road and get to where we started. What in the world happened in your heart to get you to the point of being willing to take somebody's life? You see, as citizens of the kingdom, you don't murder. Of course not. But murder is the end of the road. You see, kingdom citizens... We need to understand how the road begins and look to set our lives on a different path altogether. The root of the problem that Jesus is dealing with here is a toxic kind of anger. Now, there's nothing wrong with anger. Anybody ever been mad? That's a universal human experience. Everybody gets mad. Anger is... Anger is part of that emotional package that we're built with. It's, it's part of our image bearers that as being image bearers of God, he's included. Anger is as part of the package. I would go so far as to say that anger is an appropriate response. 
in certain situations. I would go even further and say that we as Christians, we aren't angry enough about some things. When we see unrighteousness and injustice in our world, it ought to make us spitting mad because it angers a holy God. What sort of things should we, should we be angry at? Well, again, let's look to Jesus. Jesus demonstrated anger. Jesus expressed anger at the Pharisees and the religious leaders for their fake religion and self-righteousness. That made Jesus angry. That should anger us. Self-righteousness and false religion should anger us. When people put hindrances to the gospel in front of folks, when people say it's not just the gospel, it's the gospel plus other things, those sort of things should anger us. Jesus got angry at the money changers in the temple. Why? Because they defiled the holiness of God's house. Jesus was angry. Jesus came in and, and expressed his anger in a way that none of us would be able to do. But understand this. Things like sin and unrighteousness and injustice, that ought to make the church mad. But understand that as we look to Jesus' anger, Jesus' anger always had the perfect supplement. What do we mean by that? Jesus' anger was never birthed out of hatred or ill will. Jesus' anger was accompanied by sorrow for hard-heartedness and the hard-headedness of people. Jesus' anger was always birthed out of a love. Why did he get angry at the Pharisees? Because he loved them and wanted, him to, wanted them to, to recognize their righteousness was insufficient and the only way they could be redeemed was through his blood. It was birthed out of a love. I think Jesus' fiercest anger was driven by fallen systems. You know, when Jesus turned over the money changers in the temple, he didn't go after individual money changers. He didn't say, oh, Tom, oh, I'm angry at you, but Bob, I'm not. You're okay. He didn't go after individual money changers. He was angry at a system and came into the system and disrupted the system because the system was flawed, the system was corrupt, the system was unjust. And I would say that as, kingdoms of the, uh, uh, as kingdom citizens, we ought to share in this righteous indignation towards organizations and, and, and systems that foment injustice and unrighteousness. But Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This means that anger is part of our normal expressions of emotions, but we've got to check that emotion against sinful behaviors. As well as, 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 as when we hold on to long-term arguments and grudges, we've got to constantly check that anger. We've got to check that anger against our own tendency towards pride. You notice what Jesus never got angry about? Jesus never got angry about insults. Jesus never got angry about injustices against himself. Jesus didn't get angry about attacks that were made against him. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 says this, when, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Perhaps as Christians, our first step is to try to emulate, is not to emulate Jesus' anger, but to learn to emulate his lack thereof. The kind of anger that Jesus is warning us about is an anger towards other people with a particular emphasis on other people within the body. 
Notice the familiar language that he uses in chapter 5 here. He, he talks about anger towards our brother. He's not talking about our biological brother. He's talking about the members of the community. He's talking about fellow saints in the kingdom. And we're talking about more than just disagreements. We have disagreements all the time. Disagreements aren't sinful. Disagreements are simply birthed out of the fact that we see the world a little bit differently and we have different preferences, different desires. All that's normal as, as we learn to get along and learn to love each other as, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. But what we're talking about is the kind of anger that ruins relationships. The kind of anger that, that splits churches. The kind of anger that causes people to never speak to one another again. And there's a hard warning here. For those of us in the room, those watching at home, if you've got this kind of toxic anger towards a fellow Christian, you need to check your heart. If you've allowed a grudge to set up to the point that, that you've vilified somebody else, you need to check your heart. If you've allowed an insult to jade you to the point that you've wished someone dead or you've wished ill will against someone, you need to check your heart because that's not the heart of a kingdom citizen. If you've allowed a personal attack to cause you so much consternation that you wish bad things upon somebody in your heart of hearts, you need to check your heart. Now, I don't know your heart. I can't judge your heart. But the reality of a heart like that is that you may lack the basic elements of the Christian faith. Jesus warns us of that here. That if you, if, if you say you fool, again, he's not just talking about joshing one another and kidding, kidding with one another. He's not, I mean, if somebody does something dumb and you like him, you think you're such an idiot. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about serious person-to-person -person conflicts that so often happen this side of eternity. And if you are in that boat, in that situation, there's a stern warning here. You may be liable to the fire, the hell of fire. Unless you repent from your sin, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus tells you you're destined for hell. It's a warning. He gives us clear as day right here. But like I said, every sermon comes with application. Jesus gives us good application here. Right here in his sermon, he gives us the application. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you know how hard it is sometimes to come up with application for a text. Well, Jesus has given us the application here, so you don't have to worry about it. Jesus' application is this. He's the best preacher, so he gives us two points of application. The first one is this, that idea of unworthy worship. Look at verses 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has, someone, has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. I've wondered oftentimes how much the health of the church is governed by unhealthy relationships that exist within our members. You think about it. Uh, Jesus says here, keep your offering. As a matter of fact, he doesn't say just keep your offering. He says abandon your offering. You imagine what that would look like? Uh, you know, we've now during this coronavirus thing, we've got offering plates at the, at the exits on the way out the door. Imagine if you just came up and somebody threw their offering on the ground and turned around and went back and started talking to somebody else. And that's what he's saying here. You don't put in the offering plate. You don't leave your offering. You, you abandon it while you go reconcile to your brother. That's pretty serious. Could it be that churches are struggling today? 
because we've allowed too much of this to go on in the body. We've allowed for too long this sort of anger and resentment and hostility to exist within the body of Christ. And we say, man, the church today is so unhealthy. Maybe the church is unhealthy because the relationships in the body are unhealthy. And we've not taken the word of God seriously here to the point of, I'm going to leave my offering abandoned at the altar while I go reconcile to my brother. Here's a test. I told you this is going to be hard. Here's a test. Think of everybody in the church. Because again, this comes home. We can talk about the church, but we got to talk about our church here because that's what he's talking about here. You think of everybody in the church, everybody you've ever had words with, everybody you hadn't talked to in a while, and ask their, answer yourself this question. Is there someone in the church that if they came right now and sat next to you, your first response would be to get up and move? Chew on that for a second. Is there somebody that if they came and sat down right next to you right now, your first response would be, I'm going to have to get up and move? If you can put a name in that blank, we got work to do. If you can put a name in that blank, we've got problems because we are in direct violation of exactly what Jesus has told us to do here. And I'm not talking about people who are in gross sin and unrepentance. I'm not talking about those kind of things. I'm talking about somebody that you had words with last year, five years ago, ten years ago, and if they sat down next to you, your immediate response is not to greet them, not to shake their hand, not to love them as brothers or sisters in Christ. But if your immediate response is to get up and move, then your life and your heart are not in alignment with the Word of God right here. That's application. And I think how many churches don't experience the health that they could simply because there's persons in the body that can't sit next to each other at church. There's people in the body that can't talk to one another because of something that was said years ago. There's people in the body who've done things wrong to one another and instead of reconciling with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we let it go on and on and on and on. The second thing Jesus says is reconciliation. Again, Jesus knows us so well. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. You say, Pastor, I got an argument, but I'm not going to jail over it. I'm not, that's not what he's saying here either. The point here is not that you're going to jail. The point is that we need to reconcile quickly. We need to reconcile quickly. We have to get over our anger and our damaged relationships quickly. Paul said not to let the sun go down on the anger. But here's another test. If you didn't fix it with Jesus' first application, then here's another chance. Think about the name of the person that you put in the blank that would make you move 
answer this question. How long you been angry? How long you been fussing? How long you been feuding? How long's it gone since you looked that person in the eye and said, I'm sorry? If it just happened this morning, you probably got some time to chew on it. You got a little while. The sun's not down yet. And if you get mad at night, I guess that means you've got until the next day to chew on it. I don't know. However, if you can't remember when it was, or maybe you know exactly when that disagreement or that argument happened and you've been mad about it ever since, what are you waiting for? Why, why carry around a pitcher of chocolate milk with ranch dressing and everything else added to it? Why wait? Why carry that around? Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not murder. But Jesus warns us that murder doesn't begin with a physical weapon. But it begins with anger in our hearts. As we work to deal with anger, we need to recognize its source. You know, sometimes, you ever been like this where you find yourself angry and the cause of your anger isn't even the object of your anger? Like, you're mad at somebody, but you're not mad at somebody because of something they did. You're mad at somebody because of something somebody else did, and they're just the closest person to you. Maybe you find yourself angry today at somebody because of something somebody did years ago. You've got to find the source so you can begin to deal with it. We also need to recognize whether our anger is sinful or righteous. If we do have righteous indignation, that's great. If we're angry at systems and, and, and things that are, that are unjust and unrighteous, we, we should be. But we've got to channel that, or that righteous indignation. We've got to make sure we don't allow that righteous indignation to become personal. I find that in this political season that there, there are folks who we have a right to be angry at some things. But the problem is when that, our anger at the system becomes personal and we're not angry because we think abortion is, is unjust and, and unrighteous, we become angry at the person who is stuck in that system. A righteous indignation should motivate us to do something about it. But we can't take it personal where we take action against people. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 reminds us that since anger is such a hard emotion to get right, we might be better off to simply bring it under control. Paul said in Colossians 3, 8, but now you must put away then anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul says to, to put away these things. Don't manage them. Don't try to toy with them. Don't tinker with them. Put it away. Put away anger and wrath and malice and slander. Put away the lies. Put away all that stuff. Why? Because you've put off the old self. And you put on new. As new creatures, we're being renewed daily as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a consequence of that, then let's learn to put away 
anger, as well as all of her cousins. Would you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for the, the difficult words of Scripture that challenge us right in our heart of hearts. God, I pray today for the body that gathered and that scattered, that if there's names that go in blanks, that we would work today to reconcile with our brothers and reconcile with our sisters. If we've been wronged or if we've wronged someone else, I pray, God, that we would no longer carry around the burden of that anger, but that we would work to keep a short list of our sin and keep a long list of your grace. God, not just our church, but may all of your churches today begin to deal with the toxic anger that so often affects us. And may we seek to honor you with our lives and honor you with our relationships. May we be moved by your application of your instructions. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.